Good Maple Physics Day, everyone. Ah, maple syrup. Champion of breakfast. The perfecter of pancakes. Sweet addition to butter, beans, and even bacon. And here in New Hampshire and all across northern New England, we've arrived in the month of March. And that means maple festivals. Producers are boiling and boiling, reducing the maple water to the amazing sweet concentrate that so many people love. But how does that treat travel from tree to table? Phenomenal fluid physics is in no short supply, and Abby Vandenberg, a research associate professor at the University of Vermont Proctor Maple Research Center, will share her joy and her expertise. She earned her PhD at the University of Vermont, and her research specialties are plant physiological ecology and maple syrup chemistry. In this episode, she discusses the wonder of sap flow, long-term tree health, production methods, and the pigments associated with autumn foliage. Welcome to Physics Alive. I'm Brad Moser, and I want to help fellow educators spark new life into the physics classroom. Each episode, I'll draw inspiration from teachers, researchers, and science communicators. I hope you enjoy. So today, I'm speaking with Abby Vandenberg, a research associate professor at the University of Vermont Proctor Research Center. Her research includes looking at sap flow, sap and syrup chemistry, long-term tree health, and the pigments associated with autumn foliage, probably amongst other things. Abby, welcome to Physics Live, and thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm really excited. So firstly, I was excited to learn that there is a Maple Research Center relatively close to me. Sounds like a cool place to visit for a maple syrup-loving science educator. But secondly, I was excited to find someone who studies pressure in maple and other trees. Pressure and fluid physics are one of my favorite physics topics. So your University of Vermont research webpage states, much of my research focuses on the ecophysiology of maple sugaring. So how did you go from a syrup-loving little girl to a researcher at a maple research center? What fed this curiosity? That's a really good question. And I guess I have to give a full disclosure that as a little girl growing up somewhere not exactly in Vermont, um, I was a little older before I had my first taste of pure maple syrup. Yeah, uh, but you know, once you're, in, yeah. once you're indoctrinated, you really can't leave that club. So um, I actually got my start in maple research um, as an undergraduate at the University of Vermont. I was a forest biology student there and I was looking for a senior thesis to do and I ended up doing um, some work on studying the physiology of fall coloration in maple trees. And oh so that kind of started it. And then by happenstance, my first field site was actually, uh, they were some trees at the Proctor Maple Research Center, which is an agricultural experiment station of the University of Vermont. And I was able to choose those trees because they had a long-term phenological record of their fall fall foliage development and so they were perfect trees for me to study so one thing led to another and after i finished my masters at uvm in forestry studying the same topic i ended up uh coming to the proctor maple research center as a seasonal technician and i have never left <laughs> mm -hmm. so the fascination 
really began as a tree loving little girl. Uh, I loved to be nice. out in the woods. I loved everything about the forest and trees. And one fascination with physiology led to another. And here I am. Oh, that's, that's awesome. I, I was just, I was just thinking of, um, I, I taught a lesson recently in my physics class about, uh, rainbows and why is, why we see the rainbow as it is and going into the physics of it. And there's, there's probably some people that, and, and that reminds me of sort of the, the looking at autumn foliage and trying to understand better about the colorization. And, and it makes me think of, there's probably some people that say, no, I just want to look at it and appreciate it. Um, it's like, you're taking all the fun out of it by doing the science for it. And I'm like, no, it's like, I'm just, I'm making it more fun. I'm making it more amazing by looking at the science of it. <laughs> well, it's really true. I think both of the, the sort of specific physiological things that I focus on, the physiology of fall, pig, fall and spring pigments and the physiology around maple syrup production are really awesome because we know so little about them. They're like these two great mysteries in hmm. physiological phenomena of nature that we understand very little about to this day. And part of that, I wow. think, is just amazing. Uh, you know, it certainly does not suck the joy out of the experience <laughs> of either looking at fall color or, uh, you know, tasting maple syrup. It, it only adds to it because they're just, you know, you study more and the mystery deepens. Well, so I wanted to ask you about a couple of the research projects that are going on. And now, now you definitely have my interest peaked in the foliage one. So if you if there's some research going on in that, I'd love to hear a little bit about that. And then maybe another type of project that's more related to, say, the, the maple syrup production side of things, just to get a flavor of what's going on there. Yeah, no pun intended. It'll of happen. All <laughs> <laughs> um, well, right now, currently, I don't have any active projects going on um, related to the physiology of fall color or spring color. Um, but previously, I had been looking at the function or the potential function of the red pigments, the anthocyanin pigments that are formed as leaves senesce in the fall and also at all sorts of other times in the leaf's history and plant's life history. So, but very specifically, the what basically the, the big picture in broad strokes of what happens when we see leaf color change, we've got two processes going on and your physics brain is just going to love this um, <laughs> because we have, basically, we have the leaf is being about it's preparing to die um which is part of the process and in doing so it is trying to reabsorb as many of the nutrients in that leaf back into the stem um mm. in order to kind of not lose as much when they're shed from the plant and so what we see as human observers essentially is the the first main process that goes on in that leaf senescence process is that the green chlorophyll pigment first the leaf stops producing it and then it also is broken down and so when it does that um the basically all of the accessory pigments that are there in the leaf all the time um, but are masked by the presence of chlorophyll those become revealed right so we start to see this uh you know the mostly yellows and oranges and for a lot of species, that is the end of the show, right? Like the okay. chlorophyll breaks down, we see the yellow, you know, think of aspens out in out west is like 
fields and or, you know landscapes of gold. However, as this leaf is dying, there are some species that actually start producing brand new pigments, which is oh. totally insane if you're well, per, you know, anthropomorphizing it, but <laughs> it's, it's kind of a crazy thing if you first think about it to be generating it and spending energetic units mm. on uh, creating something new in a leaf that is about to die and fall off the plant. So those are the anthocyanin pigments that are responsible for the reds mm. and the purples. And um, so, you know, especially here in the Northeast, that's one of the biggest parts of the show that makes it the most spectacular. Uh, is so there like a the, production of new buds that's happening at that point? Or no, just the production of new- I wanted to make a guess. <laughs> yeah, not at all. Um, there can be, but usually not. Um, but basically there are these new pigments being formed in these leaves that are about to go away. And so the big question is, well, why the heck would a tree do that? You know, it seems very energetically wasteful. So we, uh, me, I mean, me and lots of other people have looked at, well, what is the possible function of those? Are they there to help protect the remaining photosynthetic apparatus from too much light? Are they there to maybe uh, protect it from too much light in a different way by functioning as an antioxidant? Or is it something totally different? Like they're there to provide a signal to prevent from herbivory. There's all sorts of things. So that was a very way too long-winded explanation of what I'm not looking at currently. <laughs> But it's fascinating. Which also hasn't been solved, it sounds like. <laughs> Not at all. There, there, probably there are, there are many different hypotheses. There's not a ton of support, especially for senescing leaves, not a ton of support for any one particular one. So hmm. it may be a case of difficult to prove or disprove, or it may be a case of they're there for a lot of different reasons and that they've evolved separate functions um, in different environments, different species. So yeah, so there's a huge amount of mystery, mm. but it also, it, you know, functionally speaking as, you know, back to the human being level, we are really interested in what makes it different from year, one year to another, from one spot to another, why it might be earlier or why it might be more brilliant. Yeah, it's mm. just fascinating. Cool, okay. All right, so so let's let's look at um, a more okay a more <laughs> something one. I'm actually doing, uh, and yeah, maybe, maybe about the, the maple syrup production while we're at it. Yeah, so really the kind of the research that we do at the Proctor Center falls under three big buckets, and the research within those buckets <laughs> is very varied. But the no first, pun intended. I, I'm telling you, I I warned you ahead of time. They, they don't stop and they just kind of build on themselves. So the first, the first area is um, basically research to increase both the either the productivity or profitability of maple production. So that could be lots of different research that we do here to try and maximize the yields that producers are able to obtain, whether it's through new developing new techniques or new technologies or understanding the physiology of trees better to help um, develop those tools to help increase the yields that producers are able to get from trees and then the sort of hand in hand with that the next research area is understanding the physiological and ecological impacts of sap collection tapping and sap mm -hmm. collection so what are the impacts of carbohydrate extraction from trees 
in the near and the long term? Um, and also what are some of the impacts on forests? So we basically, as we develop tools and techniques to sort of refine and make more efficient and more productive our harvesting techniques, we also need to be understanding the impacts of those techniques and that harvesting, because we've essentially gone from collecting uh, about maybe a half of a gallon of syrup equivalent per tree um, under previous collection technologies. Now we're able to collect closer to the order of a half gallon of syrup or even more, you know, under perfect ideal conditions in the quote unquote lab, like in, in our forest here in our experiments, we're oftentimes able to get a gallon of syrup per tree equivalent. So, you know, we're really able extracting a lot more. So lots of research focused on um, the impacts of that, uh, potential impacts of that. And then this third area, I'll refrain from using bucket. Oh, there, I just did it again. Um, the third area is actually focused on the maple syrup itself, its quality, its chemical composition, and uh, that can have many different flavors. Here I go again, um, but a lot- We've already of, used flavor in bucket, so we gotta keep- I know, this is, it's, yeah. I just can't help myself, it's too good. Um, <laughs> that area in the, the past decade or so, we've really been focused a lot on studying the potential impacts of new processing technologies on the composition, but particularly the flavor of the syrup that we're producing, because, you know, the maple industry is really terrific at developing innovations to make that process of converting sap to syrup way more efficient, way more green, using less energy, for example, and, and way faster for the producer. But the question always is, are any of those gains being coming at the um, potential risk to the ultimate quality of the syrup we're producing, because you know we are not selling sugar; we are really selling something that is its unique flavor and um, other properties, but mainly flavor. So we focus a lot of our research on looking at those technologies in controlled experiments at a production scale, which is all sorts of fun. So those are really the three areas, which I know is a lot. Um, but a lot of physics. We've got fluid physics. We've got all sorts of things for you. So, yeah. And my goal today is to try to pull out as much maple physics out of you as you can tolerate from tree physics to tapping to production. So let's let's head towards that. I want to start with some tree basics because uh, mm -hmm. I want to I run some things by you, I think. this, Admittedly, this is not the first or even the second time this topic has come up on the podcast. Uh, in episode, so this is going to be, I think, episode 45. Back in episode 16 with Dawn Meredith, she's uh, a professor at the University of New Hampshire, a physics professor. Mm -hmm. And we talked about her discussions with colleagues about the physics of sap rising in trees uh, because she teaches, like I do, physics for life science courses. So we're really interested in making connections to, to biology and medicine. And then in episode 23, I actually reviewed uh, a paper in a, an article in a journal called The Physics Teacher. Uh, about sap ascent in an artificial tree for uh, a teaching lab, which was a really cool paper Whoa. as well. So if I understand correctly, transpiration through a tree's leaves is the big driver of sap rising through the xylem during summer months. When water evaporates through the leaf stoma, the vacating water molecules provide like this upward tug that pulls the column up. 
and we say that the water column is under tension. Could you build our mental picture up a little bit further around that? Are there other pressure factors that move sap up and down the tree? And I guess while we're at it, why why does it need to go up and down in the first place? What's what's kind of the the, the basics of why it needs to do that? Oh my gosh! Well, that's a lot. Uh, but okay, so essentially, water is going to move through plants. Uh, in we describe it as water potential. So those are going to be forces related to pressure, gravity, and osmotic potential. So solute okay. concentration. So mm -hmm. those are can all be at play in the various uh, ways that water can move around plants. But generally, when you're talking about water being transported from the soil up through the roots and out through the leaves in transpiration, that's predominantly a, a predominantly pressure driven. Um, so when we talk about like phloem transport and stuff, there's a lot more of the osmotic potential. But generally speaking, mm. the way that you described it uh, in general is, is correct. We have, because of the wonderful properties of uh, water molecules and its capillarity, that it can actually come together in that column and actually be pulled by the driving force of the evaporation of water out of the stomata, which is super cool. Uh, the cohesion tension theory model of water transport in plants and trees are doing this you know fundamentally because they need uh they need water for their tissues in order to survive just like we do and that is how they make that work so now that we've established how sap flows when leaves are actually on the tree we need to consider a different process because maple sap is collected during the winter when no leaves are on the tree so transpiration can't be the driving force behind sap flow instead it has to do with a freeze-thaw cycle, right? So what's going on in the winter that causes this sap to move up and down the tree? And is this really even necessary for the tree? Or is it just sort of a function of it's winter that's going to happen? Or is it actually a function that the tree needs? Well, the amazing part about what's going on in this process that we exploit for maple syrup production is that it is actually almost exactly the same thing that's going on for transpiration. There's just a different driving force for water that's not evaporation, it's actually ice crystal formation. So here is what's going on. So first, the thing that we need to know is that when we talk about the sap that we harvest for maple syrup, we are not talking about phloem sap. So if you've had like a basic biology course somewhere, you probably learned that xylem is for water transport and phloem is for sugar, carbohydrate transport. We usually, it, when there's leaves on the trees and transpiration is happening, we really, that's only for water and mineral nutrients. That is what we'll find in that transpiration stream. We The plant is taking up some mineral nutrients from the soil and, and that's a way it moves those around but carbohydrates, not there. However, mm. what we're doing, it, this we're talking about the water in the xylem in the leafless season. So during the dormant season, and this is a, a great time for a visual that I don't have, but <laughs> during that leafless period, once the, the leaves have fallen off the trees, there is actually quite a bit of carbohydrate composition in the xylem sap of species like maple trees. 
especially sugar maple trees. And that's in fact why they're called sugar maples. That <laughs> composition tends to be pretty high. So the sugar in the xylem sap in the dormant season is there for a bunch of different reasons. And some of them that we know pretty well and some of them that we just speculate about. But generally speaking, the uh, sugar there provides some protection from freezing during the dormant season and probably is there playing a role to actually provide fuel for the tree because we have to remember that just because there aren't leaves on a tree doesn't mean that it's dead. All of those cells, well not all of those cells, but many cells in the wood are obviously still living and kicking around and they are doing some respiration all the winter long. And so there's sugar there to support those processes as well. So, okay, that's like step one. We now have established it's xylem sap that we're talking about when we're talking about uh, maple sap and sap harvest. The magic, so it does, as you mentioned, involve freezing and thawing conditions. Um, so the magic sort of begins to happen when the temperatures start to go below freezing. And as the temperatures drop below freezing, actually, I think I need to back up a little bit. I need my own visual aids. So one of the magic things, or let's not, I guess I shouldn't say that. One of the interesting things <laughs> about the anatomy physics is magic and magic well, yes, is physics. I, They're synonymous. I, I use the word a lot too. So, okay. okay. Well, one of the, I, I, and I totally agree. Like, Whatever physics doesn't, yeah, never mind. I'm not going to go there. So, one of the unique but also like absolutely critical things about the anatomy of maple trees that allows all of this process to happen is the fact that so basically in our xylem tissue, the vessels are pretty much the transport pipes that go up and down that water moves through. And it's surrounded by two different cells. And we're talking about the, the wood in trees um, that we kind of often think of as dead, but it's not. So those vessels that transport the liquid are actually surrounded by um, fiber cells, which provide a lot of the support to wood, but they're also surrounded by ray cells, which are living cells within that wood that we tend to think of as dead, but it's completely alive. So those are the living tissue. And that's actually where the carbohydrates get stored over the long term. So it's stored as starch in those ray cells and it is converted to sucrose, but we'll get there. Okay, so we've got our layout. The unique thing about maple trees is that those fiber cells that are surrounding the xylem are actually gas filled. They are not part of the liquid transport system. And this is what kind of sets us all up for this. In our dormant maple tree, as the temperature starts to go from above freezing to below freezing, we've got liquid sap, liquid water in that xylem vessel. As it begins to freeze, we start to have in those gas-filled fibers that are next door, we start to have ice crystals form. And once those ice crystals form, as long as the temperature stays below freezing, those ice crystals will continue to grow and grow and grow, mm. being fed by the liquid water in the neighboring xylem, which is generating a tension. <laughs> and mm -hmm. actually pulling water up from the soil into the roots and up through the xylem and to those ice crystals instead of out the stomata 
being driven by transpiration. It's ice crystal formation instead. Oh, wow. So the, so the water is being drawn up from the ground basically because of the, the crystal formation kind of pulls them along the way and says, please join this little cult we're having in here. Yes. And as the physics professor between the two of us, you could remind me of what that's called. It, the, is it the vapor pressure? There's something. Uh, chemistry professor. There's we need a chemistry professor here. <laughs> there's a correct term for the, the ice crystal formation. Uh, but, you know, when I'm talking to a lay audience, not a physics audience, it's easy enough to say it's the ice crystal growth that is being, that is the driver instead of the evap. So the freezing of water instead of the evaporation of water. It's oh. freaking fantastic. Wow. So, That's so I'm sorry, I'm sorry to think that. So I'm sorry. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to make my guess again because yeah. I, I like to make predictions and see how I do because it makes me an invested student. So I'm thinking that, okay, now the temperature rises above freezing. There's some mm -hmm. melting that occurs. So the sap might run down and then it gets cold again and freezing begins again. It could rise back up. Sort of. Basically, what happens, and you know, we're just talking about a, you know an intact tree that no one's exploiting for maple production just for the moment. So you have that initial freeze phase, those ice crystals, and we're talking about the fine branches here up in, you know, there's lots of them, right? But there's as many fine branches as there are leaves. So, so this is all happening in those ice crystals up there. So it really, it's a big driving force bringing up the water, and that uptake of water is going to happen and continue for as long as the temperature is below freezing, but until things freeze solid. And then once it is frozen solid, it can stay like that for days or even weeks, right? You know, think about January, there's not a lot of action going on. But the sort of subsequent part B of the process that we're interested in, that sort of completes it, is when the temperature then again, uh, goes above freezing, we have several things going on. First of all, just as you said, those ice crystals do begin to melt. And because the gas bubble in those fibers has been kind of compressed a bit by the ice crystals sort of impinging there, mm -hmm. we believe that there is some amount of pressure that kind of pushes some of that water back into the xylem. However, we have to talk about osmotic effects here too, because the one of the coolest thing that happens when, and, and the trigger for this is when temperatures go from freezing to thawing, it activates an enzyme that converts the, mm. uh, the starch that's stored in the ray cells, it converts it to sucrose, and it's then loaded into the xylem sap. So all of a sudden you have a, an osmotic potential. You've got tons of sucrose now in that xylem sap and a bunch of water on the other, plain water on the other side of that barrier. Oh, and exactly. So you've got in. this osmotic force, uh, osmotic driving force to get that water into the xylem vessel. And then lo and behold, oh, hey, look, we just brought a bunch of water above the force of gravity. So you've got all of this, uh -huh. uh, these various forces uh, contributing to above atmospheric pressure. You've got 
essentially majority of it is gravitational forces because you've got this huge head pressure, but you also have some of those os osmotic forces playing mm -hmm. a part and probably some of those pressure forces from the expansion of the gases in that gas bubble kind of pushing. That's Lots of this has been experimentally difficult to determine the exact bits and pieces of it, but mm -hmm. that's what we think the picture is. And so all of a sudden you have pressure that is, you know, not just a little bit above atmospheric, but, you know, at the bottom of a tree, at, of a maple tree, that can be as high as the pressure in your car tires, 35 PSI. That's no joke. Hmm. And okay. as maple producers, wow. this is the phenomenon that we actually exploit. If we tried to put a hole in the tree and get sap out at any other time, nothing would come out because the pressure between the inside oh. and the outside of the tree would be equal. But because now we have above atmospheric pressure inside, when we put the hole in the tree, the water or sap in this case will flow from where the water potential is higher to where it's lower until the two spaces are equal. Okay, that physics was way cooler than I was expecting it to be. I love it. <laughs> and now is is this, I, I think I had some questions later about other trees that might do this. So it sounds like this is, is somewhat special for maples, but I'm gonna guess there must be some other trees that are also kind of like this as well. I know you do some work about, um, about birch trees, which I really want to try birch syrup sometime, but I, I know there's, it's a yeah. lower sugar. So there are other so... species with the same anatomy or similar xylem anatomy as maples. And those are mostly the walnuts, the juglans, uh, walnuts, butternuts. Um, and those species generate above atmospheric stem pressure or pressure in the stem from, as a result of that same freezing and thawing mechanism that we just talked about. There are other species which have sucrose in the xylem sap at a much lower level, but don't have those air-filled fibers that um, really generate the pressure, things like beech. Um, so it's a very low level of sugar concentration. And that again, gets into the topic of why trees are, you know, what's the evolutionary purpose of having the sugar there or doing this pressure thing. The birches that you mentioned are actually those birches and some other species are actually pretty unique and different from maple. They do not generate the pressure in their stems in response to freezing and thawing like maples do. Their pressure generally is going to build gradually as the water column is reestablished at the end or um, also at just before the leaves come out. Um, but not in response to freezing and thawing. And most of the literature, they describe it as root pressure, but hmm. probably A, that's a misnomer, and B, it's probably not what's going on. Um, there's probably a combination of some osmotic stuff going on in the tops of those trees, as well as some osmotic stuff going on in the bottoms of the trees. And probably, oh, you're going to love this. We don't know this, but my speculation is that some of the reestablishment of that water column is driven by evaporation from the bark in the leafless state. Yeah. From the bark. Oh my God. So, so if you're collecting birch sap, that's a, it sounds like that's much later in the season, more into spring at that point. It's, it's, 
generally speaking, it, it kind of overlaps the end of the maple production season. So just just after or right at the end, depending on you know harvest practices and things like that. But it it generally is when temperatures get warm and stay warm, but not too warm. Um, it can be very quick. Um, it can be very difficult to predict. There's some uh, if any of your listeners are interested, there are some graphs of the pressure that I've taken from birch trees on some of the resources that I that I have posted online. And we can maybe put that in the show notes or something. Oh, that'd be great. You, the, I, my, my, uh, my eyebrows went up and I heard graphs. I'm like, oh, graphs? Really? <laughs> of course. <laughs> okay. So let's, let's talk tapping. So, and I actually had a chance to, um, with, with Maple Weekends sort of being back on in person again this year, uh, I decided to not go to the one that was eight minutes away from my house, but the one that was an hour and a half away because it was called Moser's Maple. And I'm like, oh, there's some more Moser's. That's perfect. Right? Did you find out you were long lost cousins? Um, I was asking them lots of questions and it's it's fairly likely that that way, way back before we all came to the Americas, we we, we seem to probably have come Very from cool. the same area. So probably very long lost cousins, but indeed cousins. So yeah, Moser's Maple in yes. Krogan, New York, which probably like. It's four hours and 22 minutes away from here because that's where the International Maple Museum in Center is and where the annual Hall of Fame inductions are. And my, uh, my mentor and colleague, Dr. Tim Perkins, as well as my friend Gary Graham and my friend Joe Pollock, they were all inducted last week. So anyway, totally fine. Yeah. So you didn't visit the International Maple Museum while you were there. I had my four-year-old with me. That was not on the mm, yeah the creepy docket. creepy wax statues. <laughs> probably not a good thing for him. Yeah. No, and also yeah, staying outside is usually better. But uh, anyway, I mentioned that because uh, they were uh, for for the event they were having kids tap maple trees, and it seemed like it was so easy. It was just drill a little hole in the tree. Uh, you you clean out the hole, you hammer in a spigot, and all of a sudden, bloop, out it comes. Here, here's here's the sap, and it can drip into a bag, and it's it's as simple as that. You could just let it drip into into bags, and you'd be you'd be there. But I'm sure there's so much more to the story for today's pr production, and uh, I mean, there's so many questions to to ask. So I'll just ask a whole barrage of <laughs> them, and we'll see how you answer. So I mean, when it's like, when do we do it? When is the sap flow the fastest? And I'm I'm sure that relates to our conversation already. Um, when is the sugar concentration the highest? And and then it comes to, well, how do we encourage sap to maybe flow out more effectively, but not maybe not too effectively? That that's that's a great question. So generally speaking, as you mentioned, the sap flow is going to be fastest, the bigger the differential in pressure or water potential between the inside of the tree and outside of the tree. So the higher the pressure inside, the faster, it, the faster the sap flow, sap will flow out of the hole when you put it in there. And so if we're just hanging a bag on the tree, that um, pressure differential is really um, reliant totally on the nature of the freeze and the thaw that happens. So how deep the freeze is how long it lasts remember like if you go back to the physics of this mm. and the physiology of this the freezing phase is what's bringing that water up against the force of gravity up to generate the large majority of that above atmospheric pressure the head pressure 
So the longer that freeze lasts and the more water there is in the soil, to generally speaking, the more pressure is at least potential to develop the next time it thaws. But the nature of the thaw can also affect that too. If it's um, if it happens super fast, sometimes that can kind of off uh, kind of uh, derail things. If it happens too slow or not enough, you know, not quite thawed enough, you can have not terrific pressure. But basically, it is the nature of that freeze thaw dynamic that we depend on um, to wow. develop the above atmospheric pressure and. So if we're just relying on buckets or bags, that is 100% what we are at the mercy of. There is also, as you mentioned, the, the role of sugar content in that. And generally speaking, the sugar content tends to be highest sort of toward the beginning of the season or like just after the beginning of the season and taper off. But that has a lot of variation um, and certain, and we also see variation in sugar content from year to year, which can be a huge deal. Um, you may remember that 2021, you may remember hearing like, oh my gosh, it was a horrible year. Well, a huge reason that the production was so low that year is that sugar content was just universally low and it's sugar that we're harvesting. So if there's no sugar there, mm. um, there's not going to be much syrup in the end. Um, so we rely on the tree's carbohydrate reserves to sort of be primed to add the sugar. So the tree has to be like in good health. And then we also need those freeze thaw fluctuations for that uh, conversion of starch to sucrose to actually happen to get the sugar in the sap. So it's like twofold the we need the reserves and we need those freeze thaw fluctuations. So it's a, there's a lot of different factors that go on for that. And then I think your third question was, how do we, you know, how do we augment that? And I think your physics savvy listeners are already like, Oh, I know, I know. Um, <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> I think many people know that the advent of plastic tubing systems was a big uh, labor saver in terms of maple production because it allowed you some freedom to have sap being drawn to one place or, or uh, sort of delivered to one place versus having to go visit buckets daily so it's a real labor saver but it also enabled the application of vacuum to those interconnected systems and so we tend to think of uh okay a vacuum is sucking sap out and yes in a way that's true but your physics savvy listeners will really understand that what's going on here is we are reducing our reliance on mother nature to generate that pressure differential. So by lowering the atmospheric pressure outside of the tree, we are increasing that differential and the bigger the differential is, the faster the sap will flow. And so on days when maybe we don't have a super big thaw or a super great long freeze ahead of that thaw, that vacuum will help sort of manufacture that pressure, pressure differential or help increase it so that we can have sap flow on days when if we were just doing things with a bucket or bag, the sap flow might be really minimal. All about. You're going to love this. You're going to love this. Um this demonstration I do in physics class, which exactly hits on this. So, uh, we, we take, a like basically like a long PVC pipe. We put a ping pong ball in it, seal up both ends. 
and then attach a, a vacuum pump to it and draw all of the air outside of of the um, of the tube. And then you puncture a hole in the back end, and all of atmospheric pressure rushes in. So now it's like that's the the tree pressure, but now you've reduced the pressure on the in the inside. That ping pong ball comes flying out of there so fast it can actually go right through. Uh, an, an empty soda can is what we like to sort of have as the target. It wow. just blasts through it. That's amazing. So it's a it's a fun it's a fun little demonstration. But then to have on top of that, I can say, all right, now here is a way that that we can use this in our production of of maple syrup. This is how we can use the same principle Absolutely. to draw more out. Oh, I like that. That's cool. So. I know this one could go for a while. So what, what's your sort of your, your quick take on um, the, the health of trees and not drawing too much sap out? It's like, I mean, is, is there sort of an understanding of, of, of what the limit is so that we don't take so much that the, the tree can't support itself well, what's anymore? what's really interesting that you'll appreciate as a scientist is that we have like almost zero data to, re zero empirical data to really answer that question at the moment. Um, but we have a fairly long anecdotal record of this agricultural practice mm -hmm. being sustained on the same trees for 50 to 100 years. So we already have an intuitive sense that, and a more than an intuitive sense, we have an on the ground knowledge that if this is done with the appropriate practices and which are very, uh, there's a variety of those, if it's done sustainably, it can be sustainable for a long time. Uh, but the question raised is always, okay, well, now that we have these increased production practices, we're taking more of the tree's carbohydrate resources. We're expanding the length of the season, all these things. In order to really empirically answer those, we need an experiment. So in order to investigate that, that's one of the um, research projects or several research projects that we have ongoing here are some long-term experiments where we've started off with trees that have never been tapped before that are exactly equal in every possible way growing in the same place um, because it's a really difficult experiment to do to control all the variables that might affect tree growth besides tapping but we have them set up uh, we have them at sites here at the proctor center and at um, other sites around vermont and new york and essentially what we do is we tap these trees with high yield collection practice, sort of modern current collection practices, and we monitor their radial growth and health over time um, in the long term to try and get some actual empirical data to those questions. We, we can do other shorter term experiments to answer sort of smaller pieces of those questions. Looking at, for example, are the internal wounds caused by tapples any bigger if we use high levels of vacuum? We can look at you know, lots of things related to the internal wounding, um, tap hole closure, lots of different ways that we can start to address some of those questions you talked about that also give us an indication that, you know, if practices are done correctly, that this is likely to be a sustainable uh, sustainable practice in the long term. But we really do need those actual controlled experiments to make us really comfortable with those answers, especially because it's a long-term practice. And um, so far in one of our experiments, after eight years of tapping and sap collection, there is no significant difference between trees that are tapped with these high yield practices and trees that are not tapped in their growth and overall health. So there's at least one 
human endeavor that might be sustainable that we do and is not necessarily destroying the planet? Uh, I'm sure we could find a way that this was doing like, you know, I'm sure we could, it depends on how you look at it, but um, it's a, it's a, well, up until now, it has definitely been a long-term sustainable practice. Mm -hmm. I'm sure at the, the, you visited the Mosers the other week, like they've been doing that there for, I'm sure at least 50 years, if not hundreds. Um, there are many, I think is when they got started. Yeah. And so there, this is not just a, you know, historically a sustainable practice for the trees and forests, but the like key thing to hone in on there is that it keeps forests as forests. So this is not, you know, something that it's another way that we can keep our forests reasonably intact. Um, which to me is one of the great benefits of this particular agricultural practice is it's some it's an um, an incentive to keep forests standing and in, and contiguous. Taking the simplest view once again, we can make maple syrup simply by boiling sap down to uh, until it has a higher sugar concentration. But I've heard the words to go back to osmosis, reverse osmosis applied to the boiling process. And I'm curious, why why does this get added? Is this something that's necessary? How, how is this helpful? Super helpful. And it's you're right. You The physics of this are, are super too. Okay. So the sap as it comes out of the maple tree is generally ballpark about 2% sucrose and the rest water. And so just like you said, basically to syrup is... 66% sugar. So to get syrup, we have to somehow remove all of that water and, or most of that water. And the traditional way is to do that through thermal heating, evaporation uh, through thermal processes in evaporators. But obviously that is pretty both time and labor intensive, but also very fuel intensive. Mm. So uh, around about the 1970s, um, people started experimenting with using reverse osmosis as a way to kind of the opposite way we usually think of what reverse osmosis is used for. You know, usually we think of it being used to desalinate seawater so we can have drinkable mm. water. But in this case, the water is our waste product and we're actually just <laughs> removing the water from our sugar solution with reverse osmosis. And by doing so, we can uh, basically get a jump start on the, um, the water removal process before we get to that labor and fuel and time intensive evaporation by using electricity to remove a great deal of that water for us. So by concentrating just from 2% to 8%, we've already gone, removed about 75% of the water that needs to be removed from to, in our syrup making process. So it is a huge revolutionary revolution revolutionarily efficiency changing um uh energy efficiency changing time efficiency changing everything and of course the flip side of that is always well are you doing something to the syrup that we're making because essentially the majority of the reactions that happen that develop maple syrups characteristic color and flavor 
happen only as heat is applied in the evaporator. And so anytime we're reducing the amount of time that we are evaporating in our evaporators, there's a thought, oh my gosh, could we be doing something to the quality or properties of the syrup that we're producing? And so that was a, it's been a, a heavy focus of our work looking at does concentration with reverse osmosis have an impact on flavor? And the actual answer is, um, at least up to 22% where we have done uh, controlled side-by-side -side experiments, people are not able to taste a difference in syrup produced with sap concentrated to those levels or sap, the same sap that hasn't been concentrated at all, which is really fascinating. So today in the industry, you know, many people look at, and this is like, for some people, this is like kind of an anathema to say, but for many people, the RO is the heart of a maple sugaring operation because it really is doing the majority of the work and everything is built around that system. And we can concentrate, uh, people will go anywhere from, you know, a small hobby producer might go to 4% and that's still a huge efficiency gain to uh, here at the Proctor Center, our operation actually uses uh, very high bricks technology. We concentrate our sap to 35% sugar, and which allows us to shrink it down so much that we can store it in refrigerated bulk tanks and only have to process sap every several days. Um, and it's a huge labor efficiency savings for us and it's it works for us. So there's a lot of different ways to, um, to accomplish different things <laughs> um, in terms of maple production. Uh, first of all, I, I love the word. I love that you use the word anathema. That I don't hear that word enough, and that's great. Uh, and of course, that's the saying that there's the maple syrup purists out there, which every everything needs to have as purists. So absolutely, that's... it takes everyone. Um, and there's different markets for maple syrup. Like there is, there are markets for ingredients. You know, there are markets for syrup that has very dark flavor. There's markets for syrup that ha is very light and delicate in flavor. The flavor of syrup varies enormously. And the profile, I mean, both in broad strokes, like light to dark, delicate to strong, to like the finer strokes of like floral and fruit and vanilla, like the, it's, it's a universe in there. And it takes all of it to have this industry to satisfy all the needs for maple syrup and the desires for maple syrup. There was something you said about, you know, the, the amount of time in um, in sort of the boiling unit and, and whether whether this could change the the flavor profile. And now that you're getting into this, I'm a little curious about uh, different flavors, light and dark, about grade A versus grade B. I, I remember when I was um, I was living in Connecticut, for some reason, that was where I could buy grade B syrup. I don't know why I couldn't buy it in different states because it was all coming. None, none of it was coming from Connecticut. And, and I remember in my research for this episode, seeing something to the, to the factor of sometimes the grade B syrup is like, maybe it was boiled longer and it's, it caramelized a little bit more. So I'm, I'm curious a little bit about some of those different flavor profiles and, and where they come from. Just sort of the, the, just sort of that, the cliff nose version of that, like what, where, where is some of that? Is it, is it from the tree itself and weather conditions, uh, from soil types, or is it more from post-production? Is it all the above? all of the above like the the answer the real answer to those questions will be the rest of my career but generally <laughs> speaking the flavor of syrup 
essentially is begins with the composition of the sap. And so the sap is predominantly sucrose and water. And sucrose is, uh, oh, see, here we get a little bit chemistry E for our physics podcast, but sucrose is a disaccharide uh, made up of glucose and fructose. Sucrose itself does not react a whole lot in terms of the reactions that make color and flavor, the predominant ones that we, that happen in maple flavor development, which are sugar degradation reactions and Maillard reactions. However, glucose and fructose, the sucrose components, they are very reactive in those reactions when sugar is heated. So essentially, when we have the beginning of the season where mostly sucrose, there is not a whole lot of color and flavor development. That's when you tend to get your, what used to be called fancy, the lighter color, lighter flavor, more delicate syrups. And then as the season progresses, we have both warmer temperatures and we also have time on our side. And so we have lots of microorganisms that come to the party and they start acting to do their thing. And they end up uh, splitting a lot of that sucrose into its glucose and fructose. And as that happens, we have more color and flavor development in our evaporators and more color and flavor development in the syrup that we make. So there's microbes involved. That's also temperature that's going to come into play. And just like you said, the time and heating time in the evaporator can also have a play a role. So it's time, it's temperature, it's concentration of reactants, just like any other, um, uh, chemical engineering question, right? Uh, but there are many different factors at play, whether it is the tubing collection system and, you know, how many microbes are there and who's there. And these are all fascinating things that play into what ends up coming out of the evaporator and ending up on your plate. Oh gosh! Oh, you, you mentioned my, microbes, and it makes me think. It's like, well, what if we what if we bring um, fungi into the party? Uh, fermentation and, and yeast. Has there been anything? I'm just curious now, like because fermentation just makes everything can, can make things you know even more amazing. Sometimes has there been any work in fermentation of maple syrup? Is that a thing? Oh, absolutely, and I mean tons historically, but uh, currently right now, my colleagues over at the uh, Cornell Maple, uh, the E-Line Maple Research and Extension Field Station, as well as the Arnott Forest. So my Cornell colleagues, my Cornell Maple colleagues, they are heavily focused on fermentation products like kombucha and wine and all sorts of things. So that those are value-added products after the fact. We also, of course, think, you know, we have long sort of played with the who the microbes that are there at the party in our own operations, right? Like, can we make things, conditions more favorable to microbes that may be better for flavor? <laughs> um, a lot of that is really delicate in, and actually my colleagues in uh, Saint-Chasseur in uh, Quebec, they are actually they already did experiments where they basically like wiped out all the microbes in a tubing system and then inoculated it with microbes that they were pretty sure made good flavor like vanillas and things like that and so it's like they already did that research it's totally illegal to do in practice like that would violate the maple standard of identity and purity but from a research perspective it is freaking awesome 
So yes, the answer, short cliff notes answer is yes. People are experimenting with it at all uh, aspects of the system. Oh gosh, this is, I'm, I'm going to need to get you back on the, the, the show again sometime for additional, additional pieces. I, I think that would be, and I definitely want to, I want to come visit. Uh, I need to come oh. visit the, the Maple Proctor Research Center. <laughs> All right. So let's, let's get resources for people who are, are interested. So uh, for instance, I don't know why uh, sometimes you just wake up in a new year with new ideas. Uh, at the beginning of this year, I woke up and said, I want to, I want to make maple syrup someday. I, I I think it's just like, I was having pancakes the one morning. I had the maple syrup on it and, and I've thought about fluid physics so much and, and, and tree <laughs> physics. And like, it just dawned on me. It's like, I want to try making maple syrup sometime and going to New Hampshire. I, I'm sure I'm going to the right place for that, but I, I'm curious on resources. If somebody wanted to get into maple syrup production, you know, just in their kind of backyard, uh, but then also just for listeners who are interested to learn more about the, the science of syrup, do you have any books, articles, videos, anything that you might recommend for, for folks in those kind of different buckets to use that one again? <laughs> <laughs> Full circle with the puns. Yes, I totally do. So the sort of best, like one-stop shopping resource for a technical manual for everything maple production from trees to syrup is the North American Maple Syrup Producers Manual. And the new edition of that will be coming out published. Um, that will be online um, early this fall, like late this summer or early this fall. Um, in the meantime, producers can check out or would be uh, producers can check out the previous edition, which is also a great resource. It's also available online or for purchase. Um, so that's like the book. And then for resources for all like learning all sorts of things about the production practice and research, I would actually recommend going to number one, our the UVM Proctor Maple Research Center YouTube page. We have tons of just short educational videos, longer research conferences. Um, and that will also help take you to the UVM Maple Extension webpage where my colleague, Mark Iselhart, who is the UVM Maple Extension Specialist, he has a lot of other great videos on like how to grade maple syrup, all sorts of good stuff. So those two places and the, the okay. biggest one of them all for everything is the website mapleresearch.org. This is an, a website that we created in partnership with the North American Maple Syrup Council. And it is a one-stop shopping for all papers, presentations, anything about maple that you could ever want to know that is mostly up to date, you know, so you won't find the, you know, papers from the 1970s saying how great it is to put paraformaldehyde in your trees. Um, those are no longer in there, but it is mostly the up to date research. Um, so I highly recommend people check that out. Awesome. Thank you. I, I recorded those, those down. So I will make sure those end up in the show notes for today. Abby, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. There's so much amazing physics and, and, and chemistry and biology. This was an awesome conversation. You bring so much energy and, and zest to this topic. So this has been so much fun for me. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. You're welcome. And thank you so much for having me. This has been super fun. I love to talk about this stuff anytime someone will ask me a question. So I'm glad it was enjoyable. I hope it is something that inspires your listeners. 
And yeah, we can chat and another time, anytime you're your game. Awesome. I, I, I hope, I hope some teachers might be able to make even a class project out of it. Go out and go out and tap the, the maples by the, by their campus. That would be amazing. High school. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. That was a fun one. And I can't believe how many mysteries there are. It's, I mean, here we have been studying this tree. We've been studying these processes for so long and there's still so much we don't know. And you would think as a scientist, I would not be surprised by that, but it still surprises me that we can be looking into something for so long. And there are so many pieces that, that are, are there that we just don't get. I mean, I mean, I guess part of it is uh, biology is so complex, you know, it has these physical underpinnings, but there are so many underpinnings that are underpinning the pinning. Forget that. Uh, that to put all those pieces together is just such a challenge. But I am not going to be able to get over this this whole freeze thaw process. The fact that these ice crystals are forming and that's what's pulling water up into the tree, and then it's they're melting and the and the osmotic process, which drives all that water back into the tree, and then it falls down and. That's, I just wasn't expecting that. I was not expecting that answer. And it's just been so cool, like making those connections with, and you know I have a soft spot for fluid physics, making those connections between sap rising up the tree or just the water rising up the tree in the summer and now making the connections of how, where it's similar and where it's so different in, in the winter. So, so that one I'm just going to get. I, I've already been telling that story to, to friends and family. It's like, oh, oh, you never believe this uh, about the tree. I, I don't know what they think of that, but I think it's pretty cool. I mean, all, all, of, the, the, all of what I learned in today's episode was just amazing, but that, that ice, the ice crystals are going to stick with me. Well, you can find links to articles, websites, and YouTube videos in the show notes on your podcast app, or you can go to the web link for this episode at physicsalive.com slash maple. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so that you can stay up to date with each episode as it comes out. You can also find updates and be part of the conversation on Twitter at Physics Alive and now on Mastodon at Physics Alive at Universodon.com. If you enjoy the show and you listen on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star rating and a written review. But I think word of mouth may be even better. Share this podcast with a friend. The more teaching resources we have to choose from, the better. Even though this one wasn't really about teaching per se, but this was this was fun. I, I think maybe I'll do some more episodes like this in the future. It would be great to do more episodes in the future, period. I've, I've got a plan. I've got a plan, though, for making this happen better. All right. If your resources permit, I invite you to be a patron of the show. Membership levels start at $2 per month, and your support helps to pay for upkeep, such as web host fees, podcast host fees, equipment upgrades, and in the future, hopefully some editing. So if you can help support the show, then please go to patreon.com slash physics alive. Thanks again for listening in. For me, this interview sparked my inner five-year-old, the wonder-seeking kid who wants to know why, why, why. And if the answer is usually because, then Abby delivered some fantastic becauses. So if you are a lover of maple syrup, go out and enjoy a little bit extra and give a toast to that wonderful tree and the physics magic behind the bark. Please join me again for another episode. Until next time, may you ever strive to bring physics alive and be well.